something. You're the biggest fool I ever met. You don't know what I'm talking about, and yet you're trying to tell me. some sleep, Susan. You're very tired. What makes you think you know everything better than anybody else? I don't think I know everything better than anybody else. Because you don't. Just because you and Mr. Luke Jordan. That's what's bothering you, Susan. I don't mean anything to Luke Jordan, and there's no reason why I should. He doesn't owe me a single thing, not anything at all. You're listening to episode 67 of Sass Mouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Let's begin with a pop quiz. Which Maureen O'Hara role is your favorite? Is it A, when she plays a siren and a swashbuckler, such as the Black Swan or At Swords Point? Is it B, when she plays a proud heroine whom embodies a nation, such as The Quiet Man or How Green Was My Valley? Is it C, when she plays an officer's wife, such as in Ten Gentlemen from West Point or The Long Gray Line? Or is it D, when she's embroiled in a coded romance with a woman who treats her like shit, as in Dance Girl Dance or A Woman's Secret? Maureen O'Hara was always her own woman on screen, even when she was frequently cast in supporting roles next to men. She had to grapple with stereotypes about fiery, sharp-tongued redheads who lived in fields of green, thanks to obsessive directors such as John Ford, a man who once punched her in the face at a party in his home, and then later sent drippy love letters loaded with saccharine ideas about her country. A brick top built like a brick house, Maureen O'Hara may have embodied men's fantasies on screen, but for women in the audience, she shows us a way to hang on to our own interior life, no matter what men do. The characters she played always managed to resist powerful men, and that's what endures about her legacy, even if she walks off with one of them at the fade-out. At the height of her career, she was referred to as frozen champagne for the way she kept herself in reserve during love scenes. Maureen once joked that if Clara Bow was the it girl, she was the don't girl of Hollywood. Maureen O'Hara is the woman who walked off set when her co-star George Montgomery took liberties and stuck his tongue down her throat. Another time, she went directly to the front office to complain after a director had the nerve to grope her on set. She was outraged by Rex Harrison's piggish manners and rankled at men who felt entitled to make a pass. Too often, when the subject turns to women in the studio system, people roll their eyes at women who spent most of their career playing the love interest on screen. They forget that stars had very little control over the films they made while they were under contract. The studio assigned the scripts, and if a star refused a role, they were put on suspension. The way the system worked, suspension meant paychecks stopped, and the time you did not work was added to the length of your contract. Typecasting stunted the range of many stars of the golden era of Hollywood. It meant Esther Williams stayed in the pool, Cary Grant stayed in a tuxedo, Fred Astaire in tap shoes, 
and Maureen O'Hara in an off-the-shoulder peasant blouse. But did Maureen O'Hara ever really play a character who needed a man, who wouldn't have just been grand on her own? Maureen O'Hara had two roles that bookended the 1940s that are a departure from the typecasting she endured. In both of them, she plays a woman who is devoted to her art. She plays a ballerina who becomes a stooge for Lucille Ball's burlesque dancer and Dorothy Arzner's Dance Girl Dance from 1940, and in Nicholas Ray's A Woman's Secret from 1949. O'Hara plays a singer who turns Pygmalion to Gloria Graham's Galatea. In both relationships, she plays the devoted, loyal partner who cares more for a woman who is selfish, cruel, and vindictive in return. There are so-called male love interests on the periphery, but all of the emotional stakes play between O'Hara and another woman. A Woman's Secret likely went into production because the author was Vicki Baum, a name that was instantly recognizable from her, from her hit, Grand Hotel. A Woman's Secret was originally called The Long Denial. It ran as a serial in Collier's Magazine in 1946 and was later published as a novel under the title Mortgage on Life. RKO had a history of relying on writers with an established name, and even though more than 20 years had passed since she published Grand Hotel, it had been a massive hit for Metro, so it still lent prestige to the author. Vicki Baum could generate publicity, just like the name of Vigna Del Mar, Vera Kasperi, or Edna Ferber. Development began at the end of 1947 under the title of the original story, The Long Denial. In February of 1948, production began and cameras rolled until April. The film, however, wasn't released until the following year, in February 1949. It had been caught up in yet another tumultuous changeover in the studio. In episode 65 on Lucille Ball, I mentioned that RKO's front office might as well have had a revolving door installed. So often did it host new ownership. Dory Sherry was head of production in RKO when The Long Denial was put on the schedule. He had a reputation for producing quality pictures that carried a larger social commentary about the realities of life in post-war America. He had recruited directors such as Joseph Losey, Ted Tetzlaff, Mark Robson, and Nicholas Ray, who had just recently finished a film with great potential, not yet released, that later took the title They Live by Night. The Long Denial was assembled as a picture of merit, based not only on Vicki Baum's name, but also on Herman Mankiewicz, who had already started adapting the novel for the screen when Sherry approached Nicholas Ray. The head of production won Ray over when he told him that not only would Mankiewicz write it, he would also be the producer. In 1946, Nicholas Ray had driven across the country from New York to Los Angeles with his friend John Hausman and Herman Mankiewicz, legendary screenwriter of Citizen Kane. Hausman later noted that he had never met two men who were as equally self-destructive as Ray and Mankiewicz. 
Sherry assured Ray that the long denial would be a good picture and that it would also be a worthwhile opportunity to demonstrate his flexibility with subject matter to the studio brass and RKO. Sherry had the top casting sewn up by the time Ray was on board. Maureen O'Hara wanted to pass on the long denial. Her verdict was, it stank. O'Hara objected to playing a mousy character, as was written in the original story. In Vicki Baum's story and novel, the character that Maureen was expected to play, Best Poker, estimates her looks right after she rings the police to confess a murder. She wrote, it was a plain face, completely lacking in prettiness, and yet not ugly enough to be interesting, or so Best Park Poker thought, to her who suffered from an almost aching weakness for beautiful people and things, her face with its heavy and blunt features was nothing but a bad joke. Unlike the heroine of Vicki Baum's story, who didn't have enough beauty to become a headlining singer, Maureen O'Hara was clearly a knockout. Who could blame her for bristling at the idea that she was a dowdy second fiddle to Gloria Graham? Dory Sherry reminded O'Hara that she owed RKO a picture, but he remained open to negotiation and asked her what it would take. O'Hara wanted RKO to give her husband, Will Price, a deal to direct and produce a picture. Sherry agreed, and later, in 1949, Price did a film called Strange Bargain. I'll get back to Will Price later in the episode. After Maureen O'Hara accepted the role, she insisted on script changes. Herman Mankiewicz came up with the backstory about a throat ailment that cut short the singer's promising career, which leads her to live vicariously through her protege, played by Gloria Graham. Mel Douglas also owed RKO a picture and accepted second billing. He was 47 years old, yet he had so much experience as an affable leading man in woman's pictures that he's entirely believable as a potential love interest. Gloria Graham was hot off an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress for her role in Crossfire. Sherry scored a big win when he borrowed Graham on loan from MGM to play the third-billed aspiring singer. I should point out that there was only a slight three-year difference between O'Hara and Graham, which was made to seem more significant in the film. Maureen O'Hara was only 27 years old when it was made, and Gloria Graham was 24. Soon after production began, Mel Douglas noticed that the director, Nick Ray, devoted extra time and attention to the way Gloria Graham was photographed. Ray took the extra time to light and shoot her, and as a result, she looked like a glamorous star with a gorgeous silver screen glow by cinematographer George Diskin. During production, rumors circulated that Howard Hughes planned to buy RKO, Dory Sherry began to worry about what that would mean for everyone in the studio. He took time out to visit Floyd Odlum, who was then head of the studio. Odlum was not a movie mogul. He was a business tycoon. 
Odlum had been shrewd enough that his fortune was undiminished when the stock market crashed in 1929. Once the Depression took hold, he used his money to gobble up failed businesses. And by the time the Second World War was over, he was one of the richest men in the country, sitting on a pile of over 70 million. He had purchased RKO for the profit alone, not to make art, and he welcomed Howard Hughes into a series of negotiations. When Sherry arrived at Olam's California ranch, the studio boss floated in his pool where he spent several hours a day floating to relieve pain from his rheumatoid arthritis. Odlum tried to reassure the head of production that nothing would change for him if Hughes bought out his shares of the studio. Odlum's wife estimated that Hughes himself visited around 60 times before he eventually bought the controlling interest of RKO for $8.8 million in May 1948. The staff in RKO braced themselves for what life would be like under new ownership. Famously, when Hughes made his first visit, he quipped, paint the place, before he left the lot for his office in Goldwyn studio a mile away. Sherry had a clause in his contract that gave him the option to resign if new management took over the studio. He decided to exercise it and met with the eccentric industrialist to tender his resignation. Hughes seemed surprised that Sherry wanted to leave and assured him that nothing would change. He wouldn't interfere. Sherry replied that Hughes probably wanted to run the studio his, his own way, which was his prerogative, but he certainly didn't need Sherry there just to carry out orders. Hughes assured him that he would not disrupt Sherry's authority. The honeymoon period between the men was brief. Hughes would visit the studio late at night to view the rushes, check on scripts, and review payroll and expenses. Hughes kept his office in Goldwyn's studio and passed along orders through his squeaky clean Mormon assistant. Dory Sherry did not last long as head of production under Harold Hughes. Hughes rang him one night and set a meeting for 3 a.m. Sherry refused and was scheduled for the following afternoon. Hughes told him that before they met, he wanted Sherry to remove Barbara Belgetti's from a picture because he didn't like her. Hughes would then replace her with the actress of his choosing. Hughes also gave him the order to take Battleground out of production. The new boss said no one would go to see a war picture at this time. Battleground was one of Sherry's pet projects. Sherry refused both orders from the new studio boss and resigned, telling him he could have his resignation in writing the next day. Still, Hughes insisted that they meet. They met in a house owned by Cary Grant, a close personal friend to Hughes. In his memoir, Dory Sherry recalled that the bizarre meeting with the new studio boss took place, he says, at one o'clock the next day. I walked into Cary's unused house that Hughes was temporarily occupying. There wasn't a paper, a cigarette, a flower, a match, a picture, a magazine. There was nothing except two chairs and a sofa. It had the look of a place someone had moved out of or was moving into. 
The only sign of life was Hughes, who appeared from a side room in which I caught a glimpse of a woman hooking up her bra before the door closed. Hughes beckoned me to the couch to sit next to him, his head bent forward a bit, his eyes seemingly focused on my shoes. He asked me if I was quitting because I didn't want a boss, didn't want to take orders. No, I said, that wasn't the reason. Reasonably and quietly, he pointed out that he had to have men to run his enterprise who would take his orders. I understood that. Then I realized I was beginning to feel sorry for him because I was quitting. Recognizing that the feeling was ridiculous, I took hold of myself and answered that it would be better for both of us if he let me resign without a sticky public quarrel. He didn't answer for a moment, but kept staring down at my feet. Then he asked, where did you get those shoes? I mumbled, I think they're from Johnson and Murphy. How much were they? I didn't remember, I guess 30 or $35. He said they were good looking shoes, comfortable? I said they were. Now this is rather strange behavior when the stars who were courted by Howard Hughes always made note in their memoirs of the shabby trainers he seemed to always wear with ill-fitting suits. Ava Gardner roasts him for his awful shoes, but I digress. Sherry replied that if he were to work in Hughes's aviation plant, he would absolutely follow orders because he believed that Hughes knew more about making airplanes than he did. Since Sherry believed that he knew more about making pictures than Hughes, he could not follow orders. That was the 30th of June, 1948, when Sherry resigned for keeps, but he took away with him permission to buy Battleground so he could make it at another studio. Battleground, by the way, ranked number three at the box office when Metro released it under Sherry in 1949. A few days after the meeting with Hughes in July of 1948, Dory Sherry accepted an offer from Louis B. Mayer to take over as head of production in Metro Studio, a decision that Mayer would live to regret. Back in RKO, change was swift and ruthless under Hughes. In the month of July alone, Howard Hughes had sacked 700 employees. He canceled a number of productions and delayed even more pictures from released until he could review them. The Long Denial was one of those pictures. Hughes disliked the, ch the title and changed it to A Woman's Secret. It eventually opened in February 1949. Maureen O'Hara was not a favorite of Howard Hughes. Along with many men in Hollywood, Hughes separated women into two categories, a demure category, which included women like Joan Fontaine, or the bombshell category for women such as Jane Russell. My guess is Hughes couldn't get a bead on Maureen O'Hara, who is both and neither. He probably met more resistance in her gaze than he could handle and blanked her. Once at a dinner party, Maureen became frustrated when Howard Hughes ignored her questions and cut her short when she tried to engage him into conversation. He claimed that he had trouble hearing her, yet whenever he was drawn into a topic by a man, someone like John Ford, he seemed to have no trouble at all with his hearing. 
Maureen began to understand that his deafness was a matter of convenience. Quite simply, Hughes gave Maureen the cold shoulder and she objected to being frozen out. A woman's secret has become most notable for the affair that ignited between Gloria Graham and Nicholas Ray. She was married at the time to actor Stanley Clements. The affair did not remain secret long. After Graham and Ray would arrive late to set with their hair tasseled, tasseled, looking like they had just had sex, they were spotted together frequently around town. During production, Gloria found out she was pregnant, and after the picture wrapped, she went to Las Vegas to establish residency and file for divorce. Nicholas Ray accompanied Gloria to Vegas, but spent the entire period gambling in the casinos and wiring the front office and RKO for advances on a salary. Reviews for A Woman's Secret were and continued to be lukewarm. Most people seem to look at it as a misfire in the Ray canon, or else they think of it as just a warm-up for the fever pitch he generates in Johnny Guitar. Although Nicholas Ray referred to this picture as candy box entertainment, it's possible to read his comment as designed for the Huax Golds who were on the hunt for red sympathizers. Candy box meant that the picture was free of subversive material, at least not the kind the men in Washington were looking for. For me, this is a Pygmalion story with a, su a subtle love affair turned sour between Maureen and Gloria's characters. But even if you don't want to read it for lesbian subtext, the picture teases out how passion simmers within women's relationships. The intense emotions that surround promises, commitment, and betrayal are as big as an epic saga, played out in nuance and detail. Have you ever fallen out with a woman and then tried to explain to a man he just doesn't get it. A woman's secret hinges on this common shared experience among women. During the first scene they share, the dialogue between O'Hara and Graham that you heard in the beginning of this episode sounds like a lover's quarrel. The row begins after Gloria Graham's character, Susan, who goes by the stage name, stage name Estralita, returns from singing for a radio broadcast one evening. Maureen O'Hara's character, Marion, waits for her, watching the clock pacing, and then asks Susan if she's hungry. Marion is the person who's more invested, who is the emotional caretaker in the relationship, who tries to placate the woman looking for a row. Estralita takes the stairs in her evening clothes, a jaunty feather hat over smooth updo a fur wrap, an evening gown. She stops in the middle of the staircase and explodes in rage. Marion tries to soothe her. Susan's just tired. She needs to rest. Maybe they could go away together. No, Estralita shouts. Marion doesn't understand what she's telling her. She gives out to Marion that she's through. Gloria Graham laces scorn into her vehemence, cutting ties forever. The staircase, as a prime setting for a heated confrontation between two women, is something that Nicholas Ray would use again for the showdown between Mercedes McCambridge and Joan Crawford and Johnny Guitar. 
Ray was probably aware of the sexual symbolism Freud attached to staircases. A staircase is one of the most prominent backdrops in women's pictures. As a composite of domestic roles in space, it calls attention to the way society's expectation lead to women's frustration and limited movement. When she stops shouting, Gloria Graham storms off to her bedroom. Maureen O'Hara follows. The camera cuts to the maid tidying up, and then after a few seconds, a shot rings out. The maid finds O'Hara standing over Susan's body with a smoking pistol. The police arrive in time for Marion's confession. Viewers get the story of how things came to pass through a series of flashbacks. Although many critics point out Herman Mankiewicz's predilection for inserting flashbacks into his scripts, the flashback device was written into Vicki Baum's novel. Once the character Bess Poker, who is renamed Marion Washburn in the picture, gives her confession at the police station, she's drawn back to when she first met her protege 10 years ago. But as I mentioned, Mankiewicz did insert a mysterious throat ailment that curtails Marion's singing career. In a flashback, we see Marion on stage, accompanied by Mel Douglas as Luke Jordan at the piano. She's dressed in a modern pinafore with a low-cut peasant blouse that shows off her decolletage. She sings a bawdy song in her own voice that carries an obvious brogue. After Marion loses her voice and all hope that she will ever regain her voice, she talks to Luke about her career alternatives. She could open a bookshop or a hat shop, or she should get married. Marriage is the last option and not the most attractive. For this scene, Marion wears a distinctive hat, which makes you root for the hat shop idea. Edward Stevenson designed the costumes, which offer added dimension for her character. Maureen O'Hara wears a hat that looks like it was torn from a self-portrait by Rembrandt. O'Hara wears a large black felt hat with voluminous folds perched on one side of her head. The hat looks as coded as the sheepish Boy Scout number Anne Baxter wears for Eve Harrington's backstage introduction to Margot Channing and her friends. The black hat Marion wears suggests an artist of fortitude who holds complete indifference to the male gaze. As Marion, Maureen wears the black hat to show that she's not performing demure femininity for Mel Douglas. The memory of the hat surfaces later in the film in other wardrobe pieces for both Marion and Estralita, who often seem to mimic each other's ensembles. From the opening scene, Marion's damask dressing gown is heavy and dark, just like the evening look for Estralita. After Susan is shot, Marion changes to accompany the detective to the police station. She changes into a stark white blouse with a black velvet yoke and dark skirt. In another scene, to when Susan has become Estralita, she's on board a ship sailing back to the States when she sings in a carefully managed audition for an important stage producer who is on board. Marion sits at a table, part of the audience, in a black velvet evening gown with a high neck and just a tiny bit of white lace. 
the kind that featured once on her peasant blouse when she was a singer on stage. Esther Lita performs in a black velvet gown with a shawl neckline that leaves her shoulders bare, and around her throat, she wears a single loop tie of black velvet. It's plain, tasteful, once looped around her slender neck and ultra sophisticated. It echoes the loop tie Susan wore when she first met Marion and Jake. During the flashback for how Marion and Jake met Susan, Gloria Graham enters the picture the same way women were often introduced during films of the Depression era. Gloria Graham faints, weak from hunger, beside Maureen O'Hara and Melvin Douglas on the stairs. Again, the site that, that hosts important encounters between the leaning ladies. Unlike the heroines of the 1930s, who passed out cold when we first meet them, for example, say Miriam Hopkins in Woman Chases Man, or Anne Dvorak in I Sell Anything, or Helen Chandler in Vanity Street, or a score of other stars of women's pictures, Gloria Graham's hunger is self-imposed. Later, after Susan recovers and finishes a second bowl of soup, she explains to Marion and Luke that she had only coffee in the morning to save money. Susan's wages from the perfume counter were enough to live on, but she wanted to pay for a visit to a psychic. The psychic charged $100 a visit, but unfortunately, he needs two more visits before he could tell her anything. She's not as desperate as the heroines from the previous decade, but she certainly shares their, their determination to get what she wants. Gloria Graham plays the scene like a small town greenhorn overwhelmed by the big city. She's a wide-eyed innocent who Marion will mold. Maureen O'Hara keeps her eyes riveted on the waif, especially when she sings for them and demonstrates that she has talent. Marion strikes a bargain with Susan to develop her as a singer. Even if you disagree that there's a sexual component to the relationship, the picture gives us something that we don't see enough of on the big screen, how intense women's relationships with each other are, and how dramatic they become when they fall out. The depth of her connection escapes Luke Jordan's notice. He can't fathom what intimacy shared between two women means. Mel Douglas narrates the story to the police detective played by J.C. Flippin in a cafe once Marion is taken into custody. On the surface, it looks like Luke's in control, that he owns the story of what happened that led to Marion shooting Estralita. But with a closer look, we can see how little he really knows about what happened. When he explains to the investigating police detective, he refers to the relationship between the two women as an odd friendship, which might be more subtle coding. Later that same day, Luke Jordan turns up at the detective's home. The, the detective's wife, played by Mary Phillips, is a mediator of sorts between the men and the story of what happened between the women. The, the detective's wife even holds a paperback murder mystery in her hand when Luke arrives. She interprets the story, decodes it, and ciphers what occurred between the women that the men cannot wrap their heads around. 
The men may be in charge, but only nominally, for show. They need a woman with superior powers of deduction on the case. On their own, the men would only make a hash of it. Luke explains that Marion and Susan went off together to Paris so that the younger woman could polish her voice and gain a veneer to class her up a bit. Luke hadn't heard from Marion, and when he did, Marion failed to make any mention of Susan, so he knew that something was amiss. Viewers never see what happens with Marion and Susan once they're alone together in Paris, a city which would not have batted an eye if their relationship was more than platonic. Because of the scolds in the production code office, the picture could not show Marion and Susan living together in an intimate way, so it avoids it entirely. When he arrives in Paris to comfort Marion and replace Susan in her affections, Marion looks pale and wan, just like someone who has just been dumped. She tells him that Susan ran off with a man six weeks ago. Maureen O'Hara delivers the news with sorrow, but then she flashes in a bit of rage when she notes that Susan left behind all the beautiful clothes that Marion bought for her. The only thing she took with her was a tatty red chiffon dress. Marion burns up about the red dress. It's proof of Susan's betrayal. That Susan could even consider buying it betrayed Marion's hard work in trying to transform the 